would you grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7? We're going to dive in and just get right to it. Thanks, Jeremy. Your wife laughed really, really hard when you said, I'm weird now. Imagine how weird I was in fifth grade. Just a, just a side note from my perspective over there. That was good. Well, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. As Jeremy said, we'll be in Mark chapter 7. We just wrapped up our forgiveness practice, which I think was, was hard, but hopefully good and, and beneficial. I've heard so many incredible, just transformative stories. So thank you for participating with us in that. And in many ways, I think Mark 7 was it's kind of a gift to us because it really is going to function as such a, a perfect transition out of our forgiveness practice. My forgiveness group, actually, I was just a part of it, but we met on Monday. And in our groups, if you were a part of the forgiveness practice groups, we had the group all together, and then from time to time, you'd break into triads which really didn't make any sense because I don't think we ever broke up into a group of just three, so it didn't make any sense. But we'd, we broke up into our group of five that we called a triad, and uh, the guys were together, and we were talking, and we were supposed to pray this prayer that the Spirit would open our eyes and convict our hearts of maybe somebody that we've wronged and we needed to seek their forgiveness. And, and one of my friends in the group, as soon as someone started that and we started praying, just plugs his ears. <laughs> and then it closed his eyes as if that might keep the spirit from convicting him. And I'm like, it's a good try. I just don't think it works that way. But it's funny that I actually think we do that. Not like he did. Um, but figuratively and and how we live and think, I think we're often afraid of letting the Spirit actually speak. We're often afraid to actually hear what he's saying. And so in some kind of way and by some means we do plug our ears and close our eyes so that we won't have to deal with what he might say. And as we look at Mark chapter 7 this morning, I think that's oftentimes the case for us as a church. There's some habits that we've built as a church some values, some things that we've prioritized, really in the name of Jesus, that might actually be opposed to the way of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that today. But first I want to pray, because myself included, I think we need to invite the Spirit, even if, even when we're plugging our ears and closing our eyes to avoid hearing from Him, that He would still speak, that He would still be heard. So let's, let's open in prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this day. What a gift you are, that you are leading this church and that together we get to be a part of what you're doing. God, even in the times that we attempt to ignore you or run from you or not listen or uh, prioritize things for ourselves, may your voice be what we hear, what we understand. May you work and lead us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, him being Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews, will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. 
And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. So there's a few kind of odd cultural uh, things in these first four verses that we have to understand before we can really grasp the rest of the passage. The first is this. The, the Pharisees and the scribes were religious leaders, and we might know that, but I think sometimes we make a mistake in the church when we hear the word Pharisee. It has a negative connotation. So we hear Pharisee, and we think bad, and they wouldn't have done that. The, the Pharisees at this time were the respected religious leaders of the day. They didn't hear Pharisee or you see a Pharisee and think, oh, that's not good. Those are the people that are leading us in our culture, especially as it pertained to following God. So they're the religious leaders and the respected religious leaders of the day. They don't think of Pharisees like we might think of that word with its negative connotation. And the second thing that we need to understand, uh, and Mark talks about this a lot, we've talked about it in the first seven chapters, is this idea of being unclean. It says the disciples didn't wash their hands how the elders did And that's not talking about hygiene. That's not talking uh, about staying healthy. It's talking about a a religious ceremonial practice that God directed the priests for the Israelite nation to have. They were supposed to wash and prepare and wear certain clothes when they would present a sacrifice in God's presence. So God gave this law, do these things, wash in this way so you'll be quote-unquote clean when you present a sacrifice. To be unclean was really to be unworthy, could maybe be how we translate it, unworthy of being in the temple, unworthy of being in God's presence and being in relationship with him. So in their culture, being clean or unclean was was very significant. You'll see here in the first four, four verses that there's some unique language. It says, keeping the tradition of the elders and Many other customs they have received and keep. Uh, it's important to know that these customs, these traditions from the elders, were not from God. This was not a part of the law and the Old Testament that was written. It's part of something called the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the, the Jewish people. And, and what happened was God had told his people, hey, here's how life will be best. Here's how to be healthy and to have good relationships with one another. And they often ignored him. And so they felt and experienced the consequences of ignoring God's good instruction. And so God told them to repent and to obey. And what they decided to do is take matters into their own hands. And in order to never break the rules again, they took the rules very seriously. They they created this oral tradition, which kind of functioned like a fence. And we've talked about this before, around the rules. So there's God's rules, and then there's these man-made rules that function as a fence. And what they did is created so many rules that they'd have this outer layer to keep them from ever getting near to the inner layer that God had given. So they'll never even get close to to this proximity of breaking God's law. So there's these man-made rules that they're talking about, and one of those was this ceremonial, not for hygiene, washing of hands before leaders, especially, ate a meal. Uh, We pick up in verse 5. Then the Pharisees, again, don't think of the negative connotation as we think about the setting and people questioning Jesus, Jesus speaking and teaching in a crowd around them. The Pharisees, respected religious leaders, and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean or unworthy hands? Jesus answered them, okay, 
before we hear his response, there's a crowd. The religious leaders, the people that actually have authority, Jesus doesn't actually have authority culturally. He does as God, but not culturally in this moment. They're the ones asking this question to Jesus. The people respect the Pharisees. And here is Jesus' response. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written. Okay, this is an intense moment. No wonder Jesus was killed. He's, he's insulting them. He's rebuking them. He's correcting them in the front of a crowd. And he says, Isaiah was right when he spoke about you hypocrites. As it was written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, meaning truth, the commands of men. That's a pretty serious allegation. It's a pretty serious allegation. The, the word hypocrite here is translated as actor or pretender. They had actors just like we do, but they weren't in TV series on Netflix and on our TVs. They had actual stages and theaters, and the actors would wear masks and on stage pretend or act to be something that they were not for the sake of the show. And so Jesus is looking at the respected religious leaders of the day and saying, you are nothing but actors, pretending to be clean on the outside, but filled with filth on the inside. That's insulting. You can hear the silence as he speaks that to this crowd and nobody knows what to do. This is a significant moment. Now, I want to transition now and think about ourselves. We hear this word hypocrite. That's a word that the church is often called, right? And rightfully so. Like we are known as judgmental and hypocritical and for good reason. And we probably would all agree with that. We've seen that. We've understood it. We've experienced it. Maybe we've participated in it. And we'd all probably also agree that that's an issue for for which we need a solution. The church should not be known as hypocrites because as crazy as God seems to be, I don't understand him always, he chose us to be the people that others, the world, outsiders, will look at and want to be with Jesus. We're to be this preview, this example, this glimpse of his kingdom by the way we live and love and interact. So it's a significant issue if we're known as hypocritical in our world. And so often, right, the reason we're known as hypocritical is a pretty simple, almost mathematical equation. Our words do not match our deeds, therefore we're hypocrites. It's true. What we say does not match what we do. Our actions and our words are not aligned. They're unequal. And we know what the solution is, right? We've heard it since we were a kid. Maybe in in church circles or or maybe just kind of in a moralistic culture that that sometimes we, we seem to have. And you hear something like this. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk, right? We've heard that. We go, well, it's that simple. As Christians, all we have to do is is no longer just talk the talk, but actually live it out and walk the walk. But but I'm convicted, I'm convinced that's fully backwards. What if, as we we teach our kids and, and help journey alongside of one another in the midst of the church, and we express to culture, hey, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk, and then we won't be hypocrites. What if that's fully backwards? What if we're actually articulating something that, that maybe perhaps I would, I would be so bold as to say is anti-gospel? It's not even walking in the way of Jesus, but is leading people away from 
Jesus. And I think what we'll see here in Mark chapter 7 is that that's what Jesus is communicating. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, and now it's silent, and Jesus speaks, these people, and he's looking at them, and everybody is looking at them. Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Let's just pause for a second. I'm going to let it be silent. Is that true of us? Is that true of you and I? Do we honor him with our lips, maybe especially on a Sunday, but have hearts far from him? Do we worship him, especially on Sunday? That's our context for worship. It's how we sometimes understand understand it. And then teach something, maybe even against the way of Jesus. It actually terrifies me a little bit. As a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor. What are the moments when maybe church culture, my upbringing, or the the things we've grown up with in moralism cause us to prioritize something as I look and speak to my children or my wife about the appearance of godliness more so than actual godliness, which is about the heart. I'm just going to let it be silent for a second and reflect on that. Where do you fall in that? What do you prioritize more, the appearance of godliness or true godliness? We know the issue. The church is known as hypocrites, again, rightfully so. We know the equation and that it doesn't add up. But what if we have the solution wrong? What if instead of don't just talk the talk, walk the walk, it seems to me like Jesus' answer is let your talk match your walk. The walk is what actually is is leading often, and the call of Jesus is not to walk better by our own effort and power to be better, to do better, to be more moralistic and good, quote-unquote, Christian people, I actually think a heart that is near the heart of God is a heart that is filled with two things, a pattern of two things, repentance on one hand and dependence on the other. A heart drawn near to God is not a good person that has it all together. That person doesn't exist. A heart drawn near to God is a person that vocally, verbally, audibly, in community, repents, confesses, and then does not depend on self, but depends on the Spirit to unite us with Christ and transform our lives. How many times have you heard the words, I'll do better, from somebody, or maybe you've spoken them, and then it doesn't happen? I go, Jesus, what are you doing? It's probably like waiting for you to repent and depend on me. Because this thing, by your own effort, just doesn't work. What if our focus becomes less about doing better and more about being honest? 
What if the focus is less on walking in a more godly way and begins with talking in a godly way, which actually means confessing, repenting, and depending on Jesus? Let's pick up in in verse 8. Jesus still speaking publicly to the Pharisees who are respected religious leaders. In this awkward silence, he says, Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, Hear that talked about this a couple weeks ago. You've heard it said, but I say to you, but Moses said, but you say. You should always be questioning any religious leader, any teacher, 100% including myself. Does that align with what Jesus actually says? But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. That really doesn't make sense to us and we don't have time to go into the details. But in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying here is you provided a loophole for children to not take care of their parents and to selfishly keep all of the money for themselves. Verse 14, summoning the crowd again. He told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Don't just hear, but understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he says something insulting that we should take note of. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. That's not like super kind. He's saying, you're all deaf. You're not seeing. You're not understanding. You're not grasping what I'm telling you. Anyone has ears to hear, he should listen, and not just listen, but also understand. I want to turn to Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Jesus is speaking in a different instance, also to the culturally accepted religious leaders. And listen to what he says. And, And I wonder if he might actually say something similar to us. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so the outside of it may also become clean. Sequence matters. We'll get to that later. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. And the same way on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They cared more about the appearance of godliness than true godliness, which can be characterized by a heart patterned with repentance and dependence. A whitewashed tomb. I've read this passage so many times. I remember about eight years ago, I was going to teach on this passage, and I studied, and I was excited. I had some really great points. It was going to be good. And then at the end, I'm reading a commentary, and I'm going, oh, wow, I totally misunderstood this. So I had to scrap it. 
But I learned something really key in that moment. A a whitewashed tomb is not something that was meant to be an exhibit. It was meant to be seen from far away so that everybody close to it would see it, but not so that they could wonder at the beauty of the, the freshly painted tomb. It was not something a tourist would go see. It was actually quite the opposite. A whitewashed tomb was supposed to be seen from far away, and it was supposed to function like a stop sign, like a do not enter. It meant don't get anywhere near here, because culturally, if you got too close within a certain proximity of death, you were made unclean. Unclean means unworthy of God's presence. Unworthy of God's presence means you can't go worship in the temple. And so a whitewashed tomb was a big stop sign saying, stay far away from this place. Now hold on. Jesus just called the religious leaders of the day whitewashed tombs. What is he communicating? He's telling the crowd that is there, stay far, far, far away from these people that you think are leading you well. Because they're actually 100% leading you well but in the total wrong direction. That's something we have to be cautious of. Jesus was more concerned with his followers being led away by pretenders, having the appearance of godliness, than he was concerned with his followers being led away by what we might call the common sins that we think about, the world's apparent uncleanliness. We continue Uh, to read in verse 17, when Jesus went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person that that defiles him? For from within, out of people's hearts, hearts first, okay, then come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Side note, notice that stinginess is like in a list with murder and adultery and promiscuity, blasphemy. That's actually fascinating. Jesus might actually mean the heart is what matters most. Here's what I think we often think. If you do those things, those bad things, well, then your heart's going to be corrupted. So stay away from those things to keep a pure heart. And Jesus is saying, good luck, but you'll keep failing. The only way to a good heart, a godly heart, is actually to be characterized by repentance and then dependence on him. Now that's different. Let's go back to verses 6 through 9. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, which may or may not be us. Are we just pretending? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. I wonder when God gave that word to Isaiah, I wonder like, what tone and emotion he spoke that with. I think earlier I probably assumed anger. But as I just read it, I think it might be sadness. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the most valuable to be prioritized above all else, the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. You choose one over the other. He also said to them, you completely invalidate or disvalue God's command in order to maintain what? Your tradition. There's an exchange that has happened, and what is happening is that the religious leaders of the day are telling their followers to value their own way instead of the way of Jesus. And the scary thing is that people follow because it made sense. It's really, really easy to be drawn into this idea of being a good person. In many cases, Christianity has become synonymous with that. And Satan could want nothing more than that because it's completely anti-gospel. It's anti the way of Jesus. So let's have an honest conversation then and go, do we as a church, do we as individuals and families and households, communities, do we actually value true godliness or do we value the appearance of godliness more? The church shouldn't be hypocrites. I think we can all agree on that. Jesus is not interested in having followers that are pretenders. So what's the solution? I do not think it is that, that old saying, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. I think it's the opposite. May our talk match our walk, and often our walk is really broken. Often our walk is really flawed. Often we treat people poorly. Jesus doesn't say, do better. He says, trust me. Speak honestly. A heart near to God is a heart characterized by repentance, which is returning to God's way through the means of depending on the Spirit to unite us with Christ. So if we want to change, I think two things have to happen. If we don't want to be known as hypocrites. One, to not be hypocrites, followers of Jesus have to switch this. We've got to flip it. We've got to stop worrying about being good and doing better and instead work on just being honest. That's hard. That's not going to happen overnight because we've got patterns and habits and culture that has shaped us. And then sometimes we use this word countercultural. It's hard to change a culture, and this brings up the second point that I actually think might be more important. If we want to no longer be known as hypocrites, as the church, as a family, and we can only start with us as Restoration Church, then we have to start shifting some things culturally. And here's what I mean. We're going to have to stop promoting and protecting a culture of church where when people are actually honest and they actually embrace the way of Jesus and they actually repent and confess publicly and then start this process of depending on Jesus, what do we normally do? We crucify them. We forget that Jesus already did that. And then we make a point of them and say, hey, we can't be like this here. we got to have it together because we're Christians. How backwards is that? Instead, we're all here because we know we're messed up. And then we pretend like, oh, yeah, but that was just once. If you want a sign or an indicator to know that we have the hearts of a Pharisee, if you, you say past tense, I needed Jesus when you talk about him, Instead of, I need Jesus, we might have the heart of a Pharisee. 
So how do we avoid promoting and protecting this culture? This is going to sound crazy, but we need to celebrate people's confession and repentance. It doesn't mean we ignore hurts. That doesn't mean that we just pretend everything's going to be just okay and there's no consequences. There's consequences to sin. But we need to celebrate the steps they take of repentance. We need to come alongside and wrap our arms around people and say, we're with you on the journey. I'm proud of you for taking that step. We're here to support you and pray for you. That looks a whole lot like the way of Jesus. How often do we hear that? Not too often. We've promoted a culture that actually causes people to be afraid in the church of walking the way of Jesus, of having a heart near the heart of God, which is a heart characterized by repentance and dependence. I'm I'm convinced that what our children need is not parents that look like they have it all together when they get the kids to sleep. So when they go in the bedroom and shut the door and then they argue and fight, but the kids never see it. Parents that seem to never argue or never seem to doubt Jesus, that that never seem to make mistakes, parents that never confess. I'm convinced that what our, our kids maybe need most is parents that model what it looks like to mess up. Parents that, that look and, and model what it looks like to repent. Because here's what we're, we're meant to do is guide them to trust Jesus always, no matter the moment. Well, that, that seems fairly easy if things are good. Where our, our kids probably need help is when they've done wrong and the voice in their head, or the, the culture, Christian or not, says, hide it, feel shame. Step and go, no, that's not the gospel. Jesus said, I came so that you could have life and have it to the full. I'm convinced that, that what our spouses need is not for one spouse to convince the other that they're right or they're wrong. I've tried it. It hasn't worked out so well. And then I try it a few more times, and it still doesn't work. I believe what our spouses need is for us to model an ability to confess, to say, I'm sorry. Not to say, I'll do better. My wife, Chelsea's only hope of having a half-decent husband is me repenting and then me depending on Jesus, not saying I'll work harder. Seriously. Like, we can kind of think that's funny, but the honest reality is the key for me as a father and husband, the key for you as spouses and parents, coworkers and neighbors is repentance and then dependence on Jesus. See, we're really good at pointing out problems culturally, and there's nothing worse than a person, don't be this person, that likes to point out problems and never offers a solution. But as Christians, we have a beautiful opportunity to point out a problem, our problem, and to say we're the only ones, actually, and this is true, we're the only religion in the world that is honest about the human problem of sin, we're the only ones that actually have a solution, and his name is Jesus. Can we embrace that? But the, the world, our neighbors need is not a church that pretends to be perfect, but a church that is honest with their flaws, their sin, and their struggles, and beautifully models what it looks like to repent and depend on Jesus. May that be us. Last, uh, last service, I uh, wrapped up and we prayed, and, and something pretty cool happened. I'll never forget it. It wasn't planned. 
prayed, went into uh, communion and our response time, and then we're singing some songs. And one of our elders, Ben, was sitting there, and one of our elders, Aaron, was sitting over here. And in the middle of the song, Ben goes, hey, I feel like I need to go lead this and confess my sin. So I was like, all right, here you go. And he took the mic, and he walked up here, and I'm like, yeah, just tap Nate on the shoulder, and he'll know to step and go for it. And he did, and it was beautiful. And then people clapped, and we celebrated repentance. And then I'm sitting over there, and I'm looking across, and Aaron, one of our other elders, goes, I'm like, yeah, go for it. And I hand him the mic, and then Aaron, one of our elders, comes up. We didn't plan this. And repents and confesses. Why? Because elders aren't perfect, but they are meant to model the confession of sin and repentance and health because that's what it looks like to be a church. That's what it looks like to be a family of followers of Jesus, not pretenders. What a privilege. Oh, my goodness. What a joy for me to, to get to journey with, lead with, be led by those men, these people, this community, and there's so many of you like that. So we're going to go ahead and continue to worship now and our response. And we're going to start that, as we always do, by taking communion. Because the whole point of this message is to stop trying and to just speak honestly. And the promise of Jesus is that when we confess, as we did earlier, when we repent, he meets us right where we're at. He doesn't say, do better or try harder. He says, trust and depend on me. And so, by the power of the Spirit, we're united with Christ. As we take of the, the bread and the cup here in just a moment, know that. That is the power of the gospel. It's not you or I. And that's a beautiful power that we can't even grasp. So if you are a follower of Jesus during the, the next few moments and the next song, feel free to come to the table and to take of the bread and the cup to know that you are united with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And that when you leave here, and then you mess up. He's with you. And the call is not to walk better, but to talk more honestly, and then to let him take care of the walk part. We also uh, respond in worship by giving. So if you're a member of the, uh, the Restoration Church family, then that's for you. And the box for giving is in the back of the room, or you can give online at restorationaz.org. It's one of the ways that we align our hearts with him. Let's continue, though, to worship now in response, uh, by taking communion, by singing. Maybe you you want to confess to to someone you came with, um, but there's beauty in public confession. Paul tells us to confess, or James tells us to confess your sins to one another. Paul says, I have all kinds of reasons to boast, one of which he actually articulates as being a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he says, but I won't. He says, I will boast, though, in my weaknesses, because in my weakness, Christ's grace is sufficient for me. Let's pray and continue to worship in response. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love that surpasses all understanding. Thank you that you don't call on us or expect us to do better, but you call on us and expect us to turn to you so that we can be met in your loving arms and you can do the work to change us. Holy Spirit, may you convict. Even if we're plugging our ears and closing our eyes, may you work. Because even if it's hard, we trust you. We love you. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
When I think about the tensions between moralism and Christianity or moralism and practicing the way of Jesus, more and more I'm learning how as we become moralistic, our filters generally are about us climbing mountains. But when we recognize that actually it's really about practicing the way of Jesus, so it's about being in relationship with him, that transformation begins to uh, happen within. And as that transformation happens, um, it begins to mold us and to shape us. And so no longer are we climbing mountains to reach God, but we begin to actually practice or live into the reality that Jesus came down, lived as a man, then died sacrificing himself, taking upon himself the sins of the world so that the curtain could be torn and that God could dwell among us, with us, in us, be a part of us. And so um, what a journey it is for us. And as we continue to learn what it means to, to love well and to live well, a huge portion of that really truly is um, practicing repentance and dependence and um, how do we do that? How do we step into that? And so what does that look like for you this week? What are the opportunities that are going to be presented? My prayer is that you have eyes to see and ears to hear as we journey through and um, that the Lord gives you incredible opportunities. And then my hope is that you have the courage to step forward um, and to be honest. And when uh, Landon mentioned, let our, our, our speech match our actions, um, I think there's a level of vulnerability in that, the reality that I'm broken today. I'm frustrated today. I'm hurting today. Today is beautiful, but it's also like David. He was so good at being honest and vulnerable in the Psalms. He was so good at mourning and grieving, lamenting, and yet he would also bring that back to the reality that God is good. And and David, through um, so much brokenness, um, he had a contrite heart, a heart of repentance and dependence on God. And so may that be us. Yeah. Anyway, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. And if this is your first time, thanks so much for joining us. We're pumped that you are here. If you have not had an opportunity, jump over to our website, restorationaz.org. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.